Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. You are here with your host, Auntie Vice. And today, I'm super excited. An author I have followed for most of my kink journey, I finally get to sit down and talk to. I have the fabulous Lee Harrington on the show today. For most of my listeners, you will be familiar with at least one of his eight books or anthologies or online blogs, probably taken a class or two from him. He is phenomenal. Welcome to the show. Oh, it is such a delight to be here, Auntie Vice. Thank you so much for reaching out. And I am excited to tap in with the work that you're doing and that everyone who is listening is part of. Fantastic. So uh, you've been doing this like several of my more recent guests for quite a long time. And when you started online journaling or blogging, as the, the kids these days call it, uh, <laughs> and writing about kink, it was not a popular topic. It was not in the media. So what inspired you to do that? So at the age of 13 years old, I was at an art gallery in Bellevue, Washington, or Seattle, Washington. I can't remember which one it was. They're near, near each other for people who aren't familiar with that area. And I went to this art show, the, this installation that was happening, that it was a guy's artwork throughout his entire life, but also the journals that went with it, right? Pages out of his diary that made reference to what was happening in these paintings or like literally one of his shoes, like the kind of stuff, right? And I started thinking, you know what? I want to do this. I want to live a life where I track some part of my journey with the work with words with images with objects and i for some reason and i don't know why i chose this but i decided to track my at that point evolving erotic understanding of myself and so i have boxes of this kind of thing going back to when i was 13 and I started journaling and I had enough people who were interested in my stuff. I wasn't putting explicit stuff out there as a teen, but at 18, I started putting out explicit material and that led down this kind of roller coaster of adventure where that turned into me posting images, which turned into me becoming a part of the adult film world, which led to eventually doing sexuality education and connecting with people through the written word in a larger format as well. So it's been kind of a, a steamrolling thing ever since I was a teenager. Your episode is coming on shortly after we had Mama Vi, Vi, jo 
uh, Johnson from the Johnson Carter Library. And one of the things, especially in the last year or so, I've been interviewing a lot of queer folks and people mm-hmm. in the kink world who've put out memoirs and these are history. And there's there's a lot of reception for it. Why do you think that people are so drawn to those very personal narratives, especially in our communities? There is a longing in the human spirit to find other people whose imperfections mirror yours and whose whose lives provide a place for inspiration, not to be role models per se, right? Where you're trying to be exactly like so-and-so. Like Jane Goodall was one of my role models when I was a kid, right? I want to grow up to be an adventurer and to see the world and to be an activist supporting something important. But not a role model, but these possibility models where you can go and say, wow, if Mama Vi can do that thing that is new and edgy and scary, I didn't even know that possibility could exist. But now a doorway is open that I didn't even know was there. When I walk through that door, a different thing will take place. But I think there's inspiration in both of those directions for both imperfection as well as for possibilities. Talking about your own imperfections can be terrible. <laughs> as somebody who writes a, a lot about their own stuff, can be quite terrifying. What gave you the wherewithal to be, I'm going to put this out there and not have to polish it and, and be this brand? Uh, so the answer as a teenager was being a teenager. Right, that that I think of Miley Cyrus's newer song used to be I uh, used to be young, and for folks who haven't listened to it, it's the idea where she says, "Yes, I used to wear ridiculous outfits, and yes, I used to put out this pop stuff that you know made people like go, wow, you're airing that laundry in public,' and I used to do it because I was young, and so I look back at my younger self and go, wow, you're, you know." In the, if we think about the tarot, I, I do a lot of divination and, and tarot card reading, and I'm working on a book on that topic, um, unrelated to kink. But uh, I, I think of the fool, that when you draw the fool card, it is both the idea that something could be new, but it can also be fool's luck. It is, wow, you didn't know what was not possible. And whether it is somebody who is, you know, biologically young, or whether it is something who, somebody who's entering kink, or entering their queerness, or entering a new chapter of their career, and they don't know what they can't do, there is such beauty in that. And I look back at myself, and it's very much full card energy. So there's a couple of things I want to touch on from that. The first is you talk about not knowing necessarily the societal limitations and pushbacks you might get when you're younger. We have a lot of younger listeners, and right now the messaging around queerness, around alternative sexualities is it's bad, and it's so heaped on youth. Mm. Um, and we we so are trying to disconnect our youth from their their stories in their community. So what would you say to kids right now who are out there and they know they're different and they want to connect, but they may not have the same 
resources like those of us in California have access to. Right. Um, I remember when I was, I want to say, 16 years old. I was, this was before my medical transition for folks who don't know as a signed female at birth. And, and my first girlfriend, I went to prom with her and she ended up winning, you know, I'm sorry, homecoming. It was homecoming. And she ended up winning homecoming queen. And she and the guy who won king were both dancing on the dance floor. And we had this perfect queer moment where I came up and tapped her on the shoulder and said, may I have this dance as this butch de femme, like beautiful expression. And she was even wearing a collar, right? Because we don't talk about the fact that teenagers are kinky, but teenagers can be kinky, right? We, we are pursuing these things, but there's also the complexities of learning because of the legalities involved, right? And so I tapped her on the shoulder and she turned around and said, yes. And then a guy came up to the boyfriend of the homecoming king that nobody knew was queer, right? Nobody knew that he was bisexual was the term he used at the time. Tapped him on the shoulder and said, may I have this dance? We had this perfect queer moment. But the next day, lockers were tagged. People were beat up. The, rever- the the swing that happened from the beauty of that night where everybody was lifted up in their authenticity to the response of toxicity led eventually to those same individuals, including myself, finding some of our power in that, that resilience. And we shouldn't have to require teenagers to be resilient. It is horrible. It is sad. It is frustrating. It shouldn't have to happen. But the power of resilience that we found ended up meaning that we supported each other deeper, that we reached out and found others. We, you know, ended up going to our first LGBTQ center space and we made the commute because at the time, Portland, Oregon didn't have one. And made the commute to go to and was we created these places where we either at the time we didn't really have much online stuff but reaching out to others to find that resilience to find that support not in a how do i get my freak on sort of way but to say let's build community including that word unity And I think that's the biggest thing that I learned from that. And my hope is for folks learning is to, and and to being out there, finding community can change the world, can provide one moment where we don't think for ourselves, I don't want to be on this planet anymore. Because it's one other voice at the end of a chat line, the end of a phone line the end of a meeting that you don't understand anybody else's journey, but at least you have a meeting to go to. Even if it's you anonymously on the internet to know that community's out there. And I I think it's a little trite sometimes to say you're not alone because actually sometimes we are alone. 
there's other people out there who are alone too. And so to know that in our community, you can even be alone and feel alone, but we're still out here for you. And I think connecting through literature too is part of mm-hmm. that. And that's yes. why the memoirs are so big because, you know, when I was coming out as a teen, like I was the only queer kid in my entire district that was out. And, but I did have the Harvey Milk documentary, the original one before Guess Van Sant redid it. It was like, okay. Right. Yeah. So there's a, at least that. Right. Well, and I've had people, I, so I published a book a number of years ago. I just had second edition come out about five years ago um, called Sacred Kink, The Eightfold Paths of BDSM and Beyond. And it was my like, it's like 420 pages long. This thing is massive. And I wrote it literally to argue with a friend of mine because they said, oh, well, I'm not talking about this. these two things combined. I'm like, okay, but I am. Here is my treatise on the topic. Um the number of people who have reached out to me over the years and said, I realized that I wasn't the only one doing it, right? Reaching out through the page to say, you've got community out here. You're not the only one who had a transcendental moment in the middle of a spanking. You're not the only one who felt connected to the divine or connected to your own internal calling of the moment you were on your knees for the first time in front of someone. The number of times I feel so grateful that I wrote that piece because what you're saying of reaching out through biographies, it's reaching out through other stuff too, right? It's it's even fantasy stories and uh, and erotica to be like, oh wait, other people are talking about queer werewolves against capitalism. Yeah, it's actually a really fun book, queer queer werewolves against capitalism, but like. That you're not the only one fantasizing about that stuff, right? I love literature and other forms of media as a way to do so. And that's a perfect transition. Sacred Kink is, it was the first one of your books I read. And I loved it because it brought in the, the divine, the transcendental, and the spiritualness of BDSM. So for folks who may be just discovering this or who don't understand that it's more than just these weird physical things that we do, why don't you talk a little bit about that intersection for you and how it manifests? Yeah. So I grew up the child of a goddess-worshipping Lutheran and a born-again Catholic um, who couldn't agree on how to raise me when it comes to spirituality and faith. And so they said, go to everything, go to mosque, go to synagogue, go to temple, go to everything that you can. And I had moments in that faith exploration that tasted real, that tasted like there was an actual spark of something there, and other ones that tasted bland and had a performativity. And it wasn't about specific faiths, it was about the people or about the ritual or about the locationality, right? And... uh I then went to my first public, first or second public event. It was at a space called uh, Beyond the Edge Cafe that used to exist in Seattle. Great vegan chili, loved it so much. And then there was also a tiny little dungeon downstairs. And a guy ended up spanking or flogging me. I can't remember which. And I had a moment 
that felt like some of those other moments that tasted and felt real, that I felt expanded, that the that this physically intense experience had led to an altered state of consciousness. And afterwards, I said to him, this is so amazing. I had an altered state. I didn't have the words at the time. I had an altered state of consciousness moment. I felt so expanded and connected to the universe. And his response was, but it was just a flogging. It was just a thanking. What are you talking about? Because I had had a profound moment, but he hadn't. I had had a profound moment, but he hadn't. But that didn't invalidate my reality, my experience. And so when I look at these intersections, I look at the place where intense physicality, transformational relationships that are consciously explored, moments of deep ritual, right? So somebody laying out their pieces of rope the same every single time, looking their partner in the eye before you begin every single time, building rituals. Whether it's the rhythm of playing to music, whether it is the asceticism of stripping your life down to only one relationship or choosing to be in a power exchange dynamic, all of these different ways are the same things that get used in faith, the same things that get used in spirituality, all towards connecting with ourselves, connecting with something other or greater than us, entering altered states, and transforming our lives. You talk about the rituals that go along with a lot of kink, and I love the rituals, whether it be established protocols or it's just you develop these patterns over time. And so many of us discover Buddhism as recovering evangelicals, recovering Catholics, all of, and we're, we're searching for that. So why is ritual so important to these kind of transcendental moments that folks have? Well, I want to name first, because you're talking about is recovering Catholics, recovering evangelicals. I'm also going to name actively practicing evangelicals, actively practicing Catholics, because it's important to, to not believe, I think, that you can't be a person of profound faith, whatever that looks like to you. If you are Muslim, if you are Jewish, if you are a Druid, if you are Buddhist, right? Like, it's not about specific faiths having to be cast aside to find king. So I just wanted to note that first, because there's a lot of story that that is what you have to do. Right? The only spiritual people who cross over to kink is supposed to be pagans, right? And that, because there's a great book called Dark Moon Rising, Pagan BDSM and the Ordeal Path that came out before my work. And I think it painted a story for a lot of folks. But, and I love that book as a note. I, I love that book. But I think there is a calling in the human spirit for ritual, period, end of sentence. That is why we, when we uh, enthrone a monarch or lift up somebody to a specific point of leadership, it is done usually the same way every time. The same crown is placed on one's head or a crown is placed at all. Right, the, the visual iconography that I can see every time, oh, that person is our leader because they have a thing on their head. The magic of the thing on the head. 
or it's I want to prepare my coffee every morning the same way so that I can take a moment before the day begins to stir my spoon after I've poured oat milk creamer into my coffee and where I got my coffee tells a story too. The longing for story, the longing for repetition, the desire for when we gather together with someone else that we sit at the table at the same time and we break bread. The same thing exists in kink. It is an expansion and continuation of the human desire for repetition, for ritual, and for connection with, with the repetition of ritual. There's the repetition of our own ritual, right? You came up with your coffee idea. Or you came up with the idea that you are, I think of my former ma'am, Master Senna, and she has people before she whips them or before she binds them, has them kneel down in front of her or sit in a chair if their knees are not, you know, in alignment with that possibility. Sit in a chair and then put, she straddles over them and stands over them and put your head upon her belly and take a deep breath in and out together and then lift a chin up to look in the eyes. And then you begin, right? That moment. And every single time it's the same thing. At the end of the scene, it's the same thing. So you know we are entering ritual space together. We are entering into the ritual and the theater together. We do the thing, whatever the F the thing is. We do the thing, and then we wrap up the thing with the bookmarks, or the bookends, I should say. And so I would say, if you are new to exploring these topics, think about what rituals might be nourishing for you. Is it that at the end of an encounter, both people coil up rope together or one hand untangles the rope and then hands it to the other person? It's the, the slow untangling of the encounter you've had. Or is it that you don specific articles of clothing in the same way a clergy might, right? You slip on that leather vest with the same degree of respect you would slip on something else special because in this moment you are special. So that would be some of my thoughts. I appreciate you clarifying that there are people who are spiritual who come into it. I give the examples because almost everybody I've had on the show has left these more conservative um, mm -hmm. areas and come into Kate. But yeah, there's plenty of folks who practice it, who are still practicing other religions. Um, oh, absolutely. Spiritual. I, well, and I think it's important to name because uh, I was teaching a class on spirituality and kink in uh, Louisiana, and I like to name examples when I do my full two-hour class on it. I like to name examples from practices across the globe as well as ones as an as somebody in the United States as well as ones that are are here. And I named the idea that in entering monasteries, you are practicing ascetic practices in the same way somebody entering submission for a relationship might, right? Your relationship just happens to be at the divine. And afterwards, um, this couple came up crying, came up to me crying. And they said, I never hear examples of Christianity named in a positive light. 
People have even said to them, as practicing Baptists, have said to them, oh, well, clearly you're not actually done with Christ because you're here at a kinky event. And they went, you know what? We are married to each other under the sacraments of God. We have our devout, devote to, devout, devoted to each other. We have an amazing group of kids that are ours. We have chosen this way, and God has decreed that we are meant to enjoy each other. So we come to these parties, get inspired for things we can do within our monogamous dynamic, and then go home together refueled and refreshed, and then the next morning we go to church. How is that not being a good Christian? And yet we are being told over and over again, clearly, if you're here, you can't be a good person of faith, whatever the faith is, unless you're a Satanist or a pagan. And as somebody who is a practicing pagan, I'm down with that, right? But the alienation we sometimes cause saying people can't be X, Y, or Z. So, for example, I know folks that are that say things like, well, to be a good queer or to be a good bi person or to be a good lesbian or gay person, you have to be, you have to come out. You have to share your story with the world. On National Coming Out Day, you have to share it all with the world. And there are people who don't want to do that because their sex life is personal and private. They're not secretive about it but they just don't want to share it with the world and it's not their grandma's business to know who they love for them, mm-hmm. right? Whether they're polyamorous, whether they're bisexual, whatever it might be. Um, but there's a myth that says you have to. And so I, I encourage folks that in general, like in life, what myths can we deconstruct and what myths might be being harmful to the people around us that we love? And I want to continue on that for a moment because there's so much pressure and so much conversation in the kink world right now. What is a real dominant? What is a real submissive? And we use that term real. What are you, if you are really trans, then you've done this. If you are really queer, then you've done this. And one of the things I've loved about being queer, non-binary, kinky is the fact that I can define what mm-hmm. the fuck that means. Um, so yeah, and I, I think we need to really, for those of us who've been in a little longer, especially for new folks coming in is there is no right way to do King. There is no run, one true way. Um, although I did come across a book. I was, I'm always looking for new things to read. And I found, uh, Dr. Master Dom had published a book and I'm like, oh, and somebody, I put it up online. I'm like, I just, Mr. Toppy Top here is just like, I can't get down with the name. Like, if somebody put that, oh, he must be the one true Dom. Like, because we, we have this need to define it, but there's mm-hmm. not a right way to do this. And I want to underscore that. Yeah. Though I find people that are not in resonance with how I do it. And so, there are times when people say like, oh, this is what I mean. When somebody says like, oh, you know, you're not a real slave. I go, oh, what does that look like to you? And I go, okay, cool. Thank you for sharing your vision of that. Because now I can choose whether my submission, service, 
slavery or surrender is in resonance with your vision. Because there's times that it isn't. And there's times that I'm like, oh, that thing you just described, fuck yeah. Right? Like, I'm absolutely delighted by that idea. But here's the terms I would use. And so for me, when I would see Dr. Master Dom, I might not agree with, and I haven't read that book, so I'm not familiar, but perceiving a story based on those words, I'm going to buckle in for the fact that I might agree with 40% of what they have to say. But that 40% still might be worthwhile for me. And I might have to go through some muck that is not in alignment with me to get to that material. So an example I would give in in the the world at large, not in literature, is meeting someone of that ilk and somebody says, well, you can't be my real slave. I get to make a decision in that moment. Do I pause and have the longer conversation or do I walk? And I think that gets back to you get to define what it is for you. And other people get to do the same for them. There's plenty of people out there I've had on the show. I would not do kink in the way they do it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important to have multiple models out there. Because for mm. the longest time when it came to relationships and when it came to sexuality, we ha- were so narrow in our representation at large of what these were, a lot of people felt very constrained by them. And the last thing I want people in the kink world to think is, well, I don't do it the same way X person does it. So I must not be a real kinkster. Right. That's not it at all. Though I think for myself, one of the things I've been considering as somebody who does rope, um, rope and restraint uh, of different sorts, I've been pondering over the last 20 years or so, this notion of, why is that right way even established? Because some of it's tradition, and I love the quote uh, of tradition is just peer pressure from dead people. Right? Some of this stuff is tradition. Oh, you're using blindfolds uh, because it's what you've always seen, being an example. This came before you and you're using it. But it might also be there for a reason. Like in uh, various forms of Japanese um, rope bondage, whatever you're calling it today, there's a lot of different terms out there. Those polka dot blindfolds or gags are actually dish rags, right? Tenkui are actually dish rags. And so the why of why you're using that and why you see that kind of fabric in pictures is not just to replicate it, but you're doing having somebody be challenged by a by a humbling or a degradation or an embarrassment. And so there's a why there, there's a motivation. And so if somebody says like, this is the thing you do, if you want to be a leather person and you want to earn your cover or crap, these are the steps you have to do. It could be, we're doing this because it's tradition. We could be doing it because I made that shit up, which every tradition was made up at some point. But I think there's also this other piece of going, oh, you want people to follow these steps because 
You want to make sure people are ingrained into community before they wear this fancy object. Because that fancy object becomes a, a symbol that these steps have taken place. Or you, you want somebody to have uh, shown respect to other people. You want that, that item to mean something. And so the thing I look at a lot with that stuff is, is what is, what's the meaning behind it? Or am I copying something? Neither better or worse. You could copy things because it gets your bits engaged. Right? There's things that I'm like, oh, that's hot. It doesn't have to have deep meaning to it. Sometimes it just turns us on. But if it does, do I do want to have meaning to it? What is that actually saying and where did it come from? And for me, understanding the meaning behind certain objects, behind certain rituals adds a depth. Mm. And uh, 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 it's a Spanish, the the, 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 the umami of, of the whole si, thing si. by understanding it, right? Um, you talk about, one of the things I like when you talk about ritual and meaning is it's not all sexualized, right? It can be a master's cast in leather. It can be how you do your coffee. Um, and I, I have an entire piece on the importance of serving coffee to my sir. Right? Mm. Uh, <laughs> because it's part of that. And so I wanted to know if you want to know if you want to talk a little bit more about how you can, the importance of creating ritual outside of just kink and sex play. Yeah. There, I, I think sometimes with ritual and creating it, it's about what grooves in our mind we want to deepen. And so having that cup of coffee in crafting a ritual, it could come unconsciously. Actually, I'll use a different example than copy, though you should totally link in the show notes that essay so I can check it out. So please do so. Um, and if folks are listening, check out the show notes. We always, you know, it always gets filled with stuff. But I, I think of a friend of mine who uh, named Bujum, who used to, who is since uh, is is no longer here on the plane. But um, he and I, when I lived in Portland, used to get together to go to the movies. And whoever got there first would uh, would get the tickets. Whoever got there second got all the snacks, while the first person went and got a seat. It just happened. We never talked about it. There was no planning. It was an accident. It was even habitual. And then one day, I showed up at the movies and at this movie theater, and he was sitting outside looking really glum. And I'm like, hey, what's going on? Or... And he was like, yeah, and told me a whole story of what was happening in his life. And I said, well, I know we normally do this thing, I guess. But do you want me to just get the tickets and we don't need snacks? Life goes on. And he went, oh, sure, we can do that. But I really like this thing we've been doing so suddenly we named it and in the naming practice it practice we start transforming it from an accident into a ritual right it's a consciously chosen thing that we are doing together rather than 
a, a habit that's been almost ritualized. That a ritual has a meaning behind it. And for us, the meaning was, this is the thing we know we care about a person with because this is how we do it. This, we reinforce our friendship through this ritual. And listening, consider what are things you've been doing by habit or by rote that could be a ritual. The difference between, oh, I always make my coffee the same way. And I, enjoy making my coffee the same way because it puts me on the right foot, right? It starts my day out right. And so the transformation of a thing you're doing accidentally or in the, uh, so that could be with the cup of coffee, that could be with how you hang out with friends, that could be how you are engaging in a, a, a relationship commitment ceremony, right? Are you doing that same thing because everybody did it before. And if you pause and go, actually, that line of Philadelphia's uh, part doesn't feel right in my skin. Let's pause and reframe this. My former husband and I had it as uh, until our love runs dry. And we still love each other, but not in the way we did then. Right. So to consider what can you reframe? What needs examined or interrogated? Which things could be inspiration? For you making yours, and which things do you want to simply copy? Because copying is okay. I just think it's worthwhile to take a moment and look at it. Um, I'm I'm all for copying unless you're plagiarizing somebody's work, which is now this issue, right? Uh huh. Please cite, please, please mm-hmm. cite anybody. Um. Well, and I know people who say, oh, you're such a name dropper. And I'm like, no, for me, it's me saying, I learned this stuff from Raven Caldera. You should go study or hang out with him too. You should read his books, right? This is how I was inspired by the work of Storm Fairy Wolf. You should go check out his stuff. Here's where T. Thorn Coyle was talking about, you know, spirituality from a fairy and pagan tradition, but how I then applied it to pink. That's not what Thorne intended, but I want to cite and reference so that you can go there too. Yeah, and I think that's incredibly important. But copying in kink is part of how we learn, right? Mm-hmm. Well said. I mean, that's the the initial part of my journey was like, okay, so what's everybody else doing and how can I replicate this but uh-huh. i think you do the same thing when you learn to cook right yes. you 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 learn this and then over time you figure out what works for you and what doesn't at what point did you find you had the confidence to say i've been doing this the same way because this is how it was modeled but it's not working because that's a big confidence step for a lot of us yeah um I am going to talk about a topic that is, again, going back to teen stuff. I am not advocating for teen, like teen sexuality engaging in these ways. I am simply naming my history, so I want to state that ahead of time. My first master, I was 14, he was 16. And uh, before public kink stuff, et cetera, for me. And I feel very blessed in some ways that he is who I stumbled upon, because even if it 
by the end was toxic and I get to debate about once a year, I allow myself to debate was it abusive or not. And then I allow myself to re- to just stick with that for a year. Um, but I learned a lot of things through stuff I learned later were not consent under my understanding and definition of consent, but I didn't know that at 14. Anyway, um, I am very blessed that he was the first person I stumbled upon because we were street punks and he said to me, oh yeah, I mean, this is how I do stuff and this is who I learned it from um, and why I'm, you know, modeling after him, not those words. But hey, I mean, you could check out what that guy's doing over there. And this is the group of the 20 of us who hang out doing stuff. And we didn't have books at the time. I was 16 when SM101 came out. There were no nonfiction books. And when people say, oh, go check it out on the internet, I was of the era that Melina Williams refers to as foreplay being, (laughs) right? Like that. That's the closest I had was waiting for the chat group to to load um, and then doing it effectively, immorally, because I was involving people non-consensually in a form of statutory issues. But being around those folks gave me a permission that I chose to follow exactly how my master was doing it, because that's how he got it from his master and his master before him. But that I had other examples that afterwards, when I met that first girlfriend, I was able to say to her, hey, that stuff I was doing with him, here's what we were doing. What have you learned so far on your path? Okay, let's compare notes and figure it out together. And when I say these things are important is, 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 to, is to have other models around you. That we live in an era of the echo chamber on social media, right? The algorithm goes, oh, you were liking these kinds of posts. Let me give you more of them because it'll keep you scrolling here longer. And I see us doing it with our social circle too. Oh, you said anything wrong ever, we're kicking you out or I'm leaving your social space. And I think having even one person in your sexual social group in your political social group, whatever it is, having one person following a different model made it possible for me to go, oh, what do I need to interrogate of my own beliefs? Even if it wasn't about following their stuff at all, it was about seeing another model and going, oh, if they do it that way, and that's not for me, What might I be inspired by from them? Inspired to either do or never do. (laughs) Because both are really important, right? Models exist for us to agree with and disagree with. And so I would encourage folks, look at who's around you and have at least one person who isn't doing it identically to how you're doing it. And don't call them strange and weird and freaky or whatever, unless those are empowering terms for them. In which case, absolutely call them strange and weird and freaky. But have at least one person who's doing it differently than you. So my background is in political psychology, and that's what we call groupthink, right? Yes. And groupthink is 
been demonstrated over and over again, at least in the political sphere, as a horrible way to make decisions. And it's why you end up with debacles. So having other ways and people who challenge you, mm-hmm. even if you ultimately don't agree with them, makes you think of these things. Right. So you bring up, you know, that you may try it and need to discard it because there's some things that sound fantastic and they're great in fantasy. And in the actual carrying out of it, you're like, this is some bullshit. But one of the things with social media and with this need to reinforce everything is we often see something goes awry in a scene. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it's all over social media and it's blown out of proportion of how this person is a horrible human being because they did it such and such way that you agreed to going on in a scene, right? So how, for those of us in the kink world, do you, would you approach it to say, look, let's, let's get the whole story without being, you know, victim blaming or anything else. Because just because something went poorly doesn't mean it was non-consensual and doesn't mean there was any type of violation, right? So, There is a grouping that happens under the words consent violation, where consent accident, whoops, I didn't know that, right? Or I didn't realize that that was one of your lines, or uh, I didn't mean to do that, my bad. Um, I think of the example of uh, marking the human body. When I am tying someone up, there is a chance you will end up with a mark. No matter what I do, whether it's that you sneezed in the middle of me tightening a rope and it got caught, the skin got caught between two things, or whether it's that I pulled too hard on something, or whether it's the rope simply left a rope firm because that's what ropes do sometimes. I've had folks say, but I negotiated with you to never have a mark on me. I can't ever have a mark. I'm going on my honeymoon and I'm going to be in a bikini. I am, uh, I'm a sex worker and I need to have my body uh, plain or I'm whatever it might be, right? I need to not have marks on my body. But I've seen people say with rope work, oh, it's okay. I won't leave a mark on you. But then shit happens. Technically, that's a violation of what was negotiated. So, yeah, a line was crossed and shit happened. So, it becomes a question, how do we want to analyze that moment? Was it a consent violation, usually done actively, oftentimes from a place of power, and pushing upon someone, either a desire to gain power, a desire to hand over power. Because I've had people non-consensually hand me power where I'm like, whoa, I did not consent to be your god. Right? That's not, can we pause? You just violated my consent. So it can be in any direction and with any activity. But there's a difference between doing it consciously and doing it accidentally. And I can't know the answer until we examine what actually happened for all players involved. 
But like my, you know, experience of me having a transcendental, amazing, beautiful moment that blew me out of my my mind and my consciousness opened and the other person was like, it was a flogging. Meh. The same thing can happen in these situations. That for one person, it was a profound violation. And for the other person, it was a whoops. Both can exist in the same experience. You as the viewer, the person, you know, quarter, you know, like couch quarterbacking, you don't know which one it was. And it might be two different answers. Or three different answers. The answer from one party, the answer from the second party, and the, the answer from everybody else at the party or in that dungeon, right? There might be three completely different stories. Um, so encourage folks, if you hear about a thing, and have curiosity before rejection takes place. Uh, I had a dumpster fire. I've had two two things that I have done. One that I did, I will outright name that I did wrong. I did not take action in in a racist situation. Both one that I uh, accidentally said the wrong word, but caused harm through saying uh, a word that was racist, uh, and also like not backing up some a racist situation. So those things that happened a decade ago. I will name that that is a thing that I have done active evolution on, et cetera. But the other dumpster fire I have experienced um, was choosing to teach with someone who had caused harm to others um, in body modification gone wrong. And I had folks on there who said, well, I don't know who you are, but if you were aligned with him in any way, shape, or form, we are blacklisting you from any of our spaces. People who had never met me, never met him, knew nothing about any of the harm that he even did, other than two posts on FetLife, were blackballing me from, they were like, we're actively fighting against you doing anything ever again in the scene. But the one that broke my heart in it was it the woman who was most harmed by my friend I co-taught with? She started having people writing her and being like, I am so sorry this has happened to you. You have been victimized by these situations. You know, you are an example. Or people were telling her story as some sort of example of what it's right like to be the most wronged person in the world. They were painting her in a way that she never had a chance to break out of that story. That she was like, yeah, this thing went horribly wrong. I almost lost a foot, literally, out of this. Those are all things that took place. But you are painting meaning upon me, and you are treating me not like a human, you are treating me like a story. Analogy. Uh, a children's story that you tell at night about the boogeyman. And I am not a pre like, and hearing her talk about, and she used some really strong words, but those aren't mine to tell. She found herself being painted over and over and over again. 
And so if you're passing stories on and you are not part of them, consider how it actually affects the original people. Consider how it affects the original people. Um, because it's pretty toxic. So, yeah, that's some rambling thoughts. I don't know if that answered the question or not, but that's where my mouth wanted to go. Oh, so thank you. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate you talking about it because I think, especially for those of us who are in the scene, the longer we teach, the longer we're out there. One thing, the longer you play, the longer you're likely to accidentally or on other reasons do harm. Yeah. Like, shit happens. In any does. direction. Yeah. And yeah. and it doesn't matter if you're coming from the top side, the bottom side, wherever. Things go awry. Mm -hmm. And I've just seen a lot of fairly prominent folks, one thing goes awry or it'll come up a decade or more later. And then all of a the sudden, there's all of this acrimony and this desire to push people from the scene without ever looking at what were the original people involved saying on all sides. And that nuance, I think, for a lot of folks has been lost. And it's important to talk about how we handle that in our communities. So I, so I had a friend of mine that, uh, they were in a, an MS relationship. They used the terms master and slave in their relationship. And after the relationship ended, um, his slave was the term he, they used, came out online and talked about all the ways he'd been abusive. And he said, I don't understand. I left my door open and told her if anything is ever going wrong, I want to be there to hear your stuff. I want to adjust our relationship anytime like i want to be there for you how did i not know this i thought i did all the right things in this power exchange dynamic that was consciously constructed and agreed upon by all parties i did everything i thought i could to be able to have this not happen because i knew we like we were doing an extreme relationship format and and I said, well, because I, I looked at the picture. And I said, how long had they been in the scene when you got together? Less than a year. Okay. How long had you been in these communities? Over 20 years. Okay. Where was she living? Well, they were under our roof, and I was, and I said, and did they have a job that allowed them to actually leave? Fiscally, did they have the capacity to leave? Well, no, and I was also paying for their college. And it was time after time after time. And by the time we got to number seven, he went, oh, because he simply wasn't aware. He was not being mean in having these situations be taking place. But he hadn't thought about them. His slave clearly had because they were on the uh, lower slash receiving end of the political like, and, 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 uh, and uh, demographical the, you know, realities. So, of course, they thought about it. But it's the same thing that happened with a you know, racism, 
that there's a lot of white folks I know who literally have never had to think about what actions to do if the cops pull you over for speeding or something. While most black folks I know are like, okay, I will make sure my hands are on the dashboard or the steering wheel. I will make sure I don't reach for anything quickly. I will ask permission before I do. Because they needed to. Because of the sheer amount of death. Because of the sheer amount of arrests that shouldn't happen. Because of the sheer amount of things that have happened between Black folks and the police. And the number of white folks I know. I've thought about these things because I've been a punk, right? And but the number of people I know who haven't is and, and who didn't realize it was an issue until some recent thing that happened with a protest. And I'm like, how can you have not realized it? And privilege does not mean to be privileged to be a thing. It simply means I've never had to think about or worry about a thing because it's not my reality. That's what privilege is. And and this master had places of privilege in his power exchange relationship that he never thought about his slave's life experience. And the fact that she probably endured things, both in play and in the relationship structure, that he didn't realize she was having to endure because of the reality of what was at play. I like that you use that example because while I think in our communities around kink, we've thought a lot more about black-white relationships, at mm -hmm. least if not racial relationships overall. But I think a lot of those other areas where you can be privileged, like the length of time in the scene, class, um, just your knowledge base how those create power differences and for folks who enjoy power exchange you have to start thinking about all the other ways where the dynamic is influenced by larger social structures um so and i think that's a, a whole conversation ongoing conversation that yeah. we really haven't had around too many other areas just about the amount of time in the same right or even access to the scene, right? Even right. access to the scene. We've named already with teens and whatnot, like, or, or people who are and like, do you have access to the scene at all? Or what ageism is happening if you walk in? But um, I know a number of people who are formerly incarcerated that are in the scene who are not able to go to play spaces because there's a rule that says if you are ever a felon, you can't walk in the door. It's like, well, it... it but if they've supposedly done their time, some of which they shouldn't have had to do their time, but that's a separate conversation. Like they can't go up to attend a class because of something that has nothing to do with going to that class on banking. So to think about not just what our relationships are, but what our relationship is to our community. If you're physically disabled and all of the play events are up a flight of stairs or down a flight of stairs, well, I guess I can't be part of these spaces or communities. If it costs $60 to get into a thing, clearly I can't do it. 
if anybody is listening and goes like, I can't physically afford Lee's book. Oh, well, I guess I can't read them. No, email me. Because PDFs are just sitting there. That they are they are in like they are inconvenienced pixels. Right? There's no reason that being, you know, working three jobs to take care of your kids means you shouldn't have access to information. But I see these things happen over and over again unconsciously in our communities. When people say, oh, yeah, I'll see you at such and such event, they might go, well, it's, oh, people say, oh, it's only $99 to get in for the weekend if you're not camping and you're not doing the whatever, you're not paying for ha- Well, but you're still pay- – and people go, well, you can just commute from home, but you're still paying for babysitting each day or, in your case, cute dog grooming you know, or cute dog babysitting, right? You're still paying for that. You're taking the time off work. You are doing all these things that a lot of people don't have privilege over. When people say like, oh, yeah, I go to seven seven weekend long events a year. Wow. Yeah. What does that say? And we end up with a two-class system in the kink community where you have people that are often poor, often queer, often BIPOC. Who are doing all of the volunteerism, which isn't volunteerism, it's it's a paid work internship, right? Like are paying for this thing through their sweat. And then you have rich folks who are attending. And I think that's a really interesting model that's come into play, which is reasons I love events like Unabashed Queer Kink Conference or What's the intergalactic leather competition out of Portland that require everybody to volunteer? That have multiple pricing tiers where it's like, okay, well, you can can you pay 50 bucks, 150 bucks, you know, 250? Pay the one you can because your angel donation at the top level allows three other people to attend and us to still cover our bills because we still need the money because we still have to pay for the rental. We still have to pay for the, you know, the sample platters <laughs> for food, for snacks. Like the the red vines don't show up for free. So I think looking at all these power inequalities is important. And then building systems so that everyone can thrive. Because we all deserve to thrive. And if you don't know about it, as a note, Thrive, the BDSM Mental Health Conference. I did not mean to plug this, but um, it's a free online conference with a track for professionals and multiple tracks for people who are kinky, all on kink and neurodivergence, sorry, kink and neurodivergence or mental health. It's an amazing event. Please check them out. I cannot recommend it enough. And while we're doing plugs, what angel tickets, for those of you who are not familiar, Mostly I do them through ForbiddenTickets.com, which is yeah. a platform for queer, kinky events that Eventbrite and everybody else has a problem with. Um, and it's run by a wonderful community member out of Oakland. But you can set up your events as a producer to offer angel tickets where somebody pays extra. And I do that with all the events that I do. I know Wicked Grounds. A lot of people do now to make it more affordable. Mm-hmm. And then on the book thing... Please support your authors and bug your local library to carry these books. That's one yes. of the best way, right? 
Um, if you're listening to this episode, go and put all of Lee's books into your local library as things you want to see on the shelves because that prompts them to make it available and it gets it into the hands of people who may only be able to read it right. at the library because they don't yeah. want their spouse or parents or whoever to know. And there, it's a free way to access it then for the community. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I love the fact that a number of my books have been available through different library structures. That is my preference, actually, rather than sending people things directly. So thank you so much for naming it out loud. I I love libraries and every community I get into, every time new books come out, I'm like, please buy these. Even if they never do, it's like, please buy these books. Right. I mean, it's how people know what to recommend at all, how libraries know what to purchase, um, because they wouldn't know otherwise. They wouldn't know. And instead of phrasing as I want to get my freaky, kinky, whatever books on, in the case of Sacred Kink, it's like, I would love to look at the diversity of religious practices, period, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. In the case of rope work, it's I want to find ways to have better relationships, Because framing it out of the idea that this is edge, that this is a thing that so few people do. No! The number of humans who explore diverse sexual practices is massive. But there's a a kink educator out of France named uh, Oya. She does great classes out of the folks at karatahouse.de, karata-house.de. They're in Berlin. And... um, she does a class that I just got to attend on decolonizing kink. And there's a belief that when you say words like BDSM or kink or freaky sex, you're painting a story of who does this stuff. As compared to saying things like, because uh, she was talking about talking to folks she knows, knows in Africa who are like, oh yeah, BDSM, that stuff was made up by white people in the 60s and 70s. Right? We don't do any of that here. And then she's looking at practices from ancient Mesopotamia, and they go, oh, well, um, yeah, this is here from 3,000 years ago of binding people and then hitting them with lashes until they were able to con- uh, connect with Inanna in her descent into the underworld? Sure. No, we have been doing this. We just haven't used these words. We've used words like enjoying intense sensation. Or we use words like connecting through our partners, through finding the ways we can serve each other. Your great-grandparents who had the, quote, 1950s relationship that was a classic relationship, they were enjoying power exchange dynamics if they consented to it. And so I think breaking out of the language of saying we do BDSM is important for a lot of us to to decolonize that language because we use words like SM, pulling upon sadism and masochism. Uh, Seder von Masoch, uh, as, as, sorry, Desaad and Seder von Masoch, right? Like we're pulling upon European stories of abusive political situations and and then wondering why people look at us as if S&M is weird, we're replicating cultural trauma and political imbalances. Man. Anyway, that was a sidetrack. 
And so much of what we do is about connection and relationship. Yeah. It's almost like the weird kinky sex stuff we do is just tangent. It's one of the ways we choose to practice those connections, mm. right? It's not mm. for a lot of us. That's not the focus. It's right. that deeper connection um, and having a conscious relationship, which is so discouraged in the larger media is right. You don't, I mean, I've long joked we could never have a uh, like a lesbian version of The Bachelor because you get 12 lesbians in a room together and all of a sudden we just form a committee to overthrow the patriarchy and that doesn't make great TV. Oh, you joke about it, but there was a lesbian version of The Bachelor that ran for one season. I can't remember the name of it right now. And gosh, did they spin it as trauma-filled and as intense as they could. It, it was called like... Wife swap? No, it wasn't wife swap. It was something like that where they took lesbian couples and then who wanted deeper commitment and swapped them around with each other. It was so over the top. I I will see if I can find it for you. It's it's <laughs> an experience. It would be. It, plus, I come from an older le- like the younger lesbians today have a totally different approach to to sex and relationships. They don't all you haul. Where I hold the land speed record because I had my ex-wife sign our lease agreement three months before our first date, um, which is well done. You know, tough to do. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I have yeah, a it's very of, different. I have Go a ahead. friend of mine who's a, a lesbian who's, you know, a little bit older than myself, similar age or a little older. And uh, she just got married in a U-Haul. They were like, we're just going to take this trope and roll with it. She had earrings made that had like the U-Haul logo on them. They're in their wedding dresses up on the open back of the U-Haul. It's so it's amazing. I also joke that, you know, we've gotten the economy and, and real estate has gotten so bad. Even gay men are committing, you know, because the joke used to be, you know, what's this, what do gay men call a second date is what's a second date. Uh, oh, that's horrible. That is right. No, yeah. I, I get the joke, but no. Um, yeah. M- my version of that that I saw online that I'm like, oh, true, but bad um, was what monogamous in this economy. In this. I got living in Northern California that that rings. True. I, I do want to respect your time and we're, we've gone a bit over. What are you currently grateful for? Oh, I am grateful for having an array of friends that have built a web that I can be in that are all over the world, as well as a deep connection with them here in Denver. I am so grateful for my web of humans. I am uh, grateful that my uh, step dog, Ziggy, is learning slowly how to not attack my face as much anymore. He is so enthusiastic and I love him so much, but wow. Um, and I'm really grateful that my partner and I just had our one-year anniversary. We've been together for approaching, actually, by the time the show will be out, three years. And yeah, I think all of those round up to I am grateful for the beings that are being so present in my life. I love that. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I am 
an avid reader of your works. I love your classes. If our listeners want to connect and read your stuff, take classes, see you at an event, plug all the things. Absolutely. So my website is passionandsoul.com. And uh, some of the, I've got blogs going back to, you know, back in the day, as it were. Um, as well as my podcast that ran for years, information about my upcoming classes, individual coaching, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but my Patreon is one of the best ways to stay in touch and up to date with things. Every single week, I share different resources. Every month, our Patreon-only classes or spaces. And uh, you mentioned before stuff on switching, things on power exchange. We talked about sacred kink. I have classes on all of those in the library available to patrons only. Thank you so much for being on the show. Listeners, we will have all of those links and more in the show notes. And uh, thank you again for coming on the show. Such a delight. Thank you for having me. Hi, listeners. This is your host, Auntie Vice. This month's Big Queer Book Club meets on Discord. On February 14th at 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 9 p.m. East Coast Time. This month, we are reading Henry Hoke's Open Throat. It's a fantastic book, and Henry will be joining us. So sign up, read the book, and come for the discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.